Heavenly Father, as as always, it is a pleasure to be in your presence this morning. God, and it's my pleasure to be here with my fellow believers, with my church family. Lord, I thank you for placing me in this family, for bringing each one of us here today and the course of our lives, Lord. Um, Lord, it is an honor to, to be able to worship in freedom and to worship together. And God, it's my heart here as we, as we wrap up this series that we would each walk away from it saying, man, I've got some real clear action steps in my life of some things I should be aiming for. And God, we know that uh, you've offered us the free gift of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. And that free gift, all we have to do is open our hearts and receive it. And, or maybe there's some here today who haven't done that. But Lord, for those of us who have, God, sometimes we can ask that question, what's next? Or, okay, great, how can I thrive? How can I thrive, Lord? I think you've given us some clear answers in Scripture, Lord. And as we go over those today, help each one of us to have ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, we pray this morning. Amen. All right, so let's jump into the text, and it's rather long here. Uh, this probably could have been a couple of parts, but we're going to just pack it all in together. So the text is on the screen. You're welcome to follow along. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 12, going to verse 27. So Jesus says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And so that concludes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
Man, there's a lot to that, isn't there? Like I said, I could probably spend several weeks talking about this passage, but in the interest of time and our schedule, those things, we're going to wrap it up. But I think there's a theme here, and we're going to get to that. What is the theme? What is the theme of the entire Sermon on the Mount? Now, yes, you could go into the Sermon on the Mount and and pick out the pieces and the verses and read them independently and apply them to your lives. And that's very much the case. It's very true, provided, of course, you don't take it out of context or warp it to mean something it isn't supposed to say, right? Uh, When I was in high school, one of my favorite teachers uh, taught my AP U.S. history course, and he was kind of a character. He said a lot of funny stuff. And during the year, some friends and I, we we were kind of dorky, I guess, we ended up sort of writing down when he'd say something that we thought was funny. We started writing down, and we started making this book of his quotes. Well, naturally, many of those were quotes that, if you read them out of context, they were even funnier, right? And so we made this book. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is not like that. We don't want to do that. We don't want to take these things and read these things out of, out of context. We've got to read them in context. So you can read them independently as long as it's in context. But we also recognize that Jesus is God. And so there's a theme to this sermon. It's more than just a, a collection of sayings. There's a theme to it. Well, what is that theme? How do we find out what the theme? If it's connected, if all these things are connected, what is that main message? Well... I don't have a comprehensive answer necessarily, so I'm just kind of giving my best guess. You know, I'm not a scholar, but as I've read it and prayed about it and studied on it here, even other times in my life and this summer, here's kind of what I've come up with. And the way I've come up with it is I think we have to recognize that generally speaking, when you listen to something or you read something, where do we find the theme? We generally find it at the end. We find it in the conclusion Sometimes in the last sentence, um, I have the privilege of uh, teaching English grammar and writing to homeschool kids, fourth to sixth grade, on Mondays during the school year. It's really a blessing. And one of the things we do is, is we're teaching these kids who've never written anything in their lives before to, to write papers. As we, that's one of the things we tell them is, at the end, the last thing you say should be really the summary. It should be the theme. It's not the first thing you say. The first thing you say is not... Sometimes you're just trying to catch people's imagination and you, you tell a story or you, you have an anecdote or you do something. But at the end, at the end is where the theme is. And I think, interestingly enough, the Sermon on the Mount has some of that. So we we can kind of find the theme of the Sermon on the Mount at the end. And so what is that? I think the theme is this. God's heart for us is that we would thrive in this life. God wants us to thrive in this life. Well, how do we see that? Verse 24, Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Everyone who hears these words, what words? The words he's just spoken in this whole sermon. He's basically saying, here was the truth. I've just given you the truth. Now what? Put it into practice. And you'll be wise. Put it into practice and you'll be wise. We see this elsewhere in the New Testament in James chapter 1 verse 22. It says, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. So we know that's a theme and it gets reiterated elsewhere in the New Testament. And now Jesus emphasizes this theme of, Hey, I want you to thrive. I want you to become wise. He emphasizes it by 
giving us an illustration. And that illustration, of course, is of the wise and the foolish builder. It's about choices of how you build a house. Now, a lot of you know... my background is in architecture, and I do a lot of construction, and so I get real passionate about foundations, which is what this passage is talking about. In fact, I wrote in our siren a few weeks ago about foundations and about what kind of houses are we building. And um, you know, you, you think about a foundation, right? When Jesus goes into this passage and he, he, he talks about being wise, and he says, "Man, he built his house on the rock." He's talking about having a foundation. Well, a house without a foundation is not really a house. It's not really a building. Um, you guys have heard of, about <clears throat> tiny houses, I'm sure, right? I know Tyler knows about tiny houses, right? And they're just sort of like, oh, it's this little house that's built on like a flatbed trailer. And I, like, I hate to break it to you, that's not actually a building because <laughs> it moves around, right? It's not anchored to the earth. That's what makes something a building is that it's anchored to the earth, right? When the tornado comes, do you want to be in the basement or do you want to be in the tiny house? <laughs> well, we all know where we want to go, right? So I even have this little picture here. This reminds us, I know uh, uh, the hurricane hit this week, Hurricane Harvey, and we got a guest here from Houston here, and glad he's well, his family's okay. And um, But this is the kind of thing that happens in these storms, and these homes are built on sand, but I'm guessing they have got some kind of foundation in there. Maybe there was a whole other few rows of them out closer to the ocean that aren't there anymore, I don't know. But that's the illustration Jesus is giving us, is do what I've said, and you will have a foundation, and you won't be swept away, not if, but when, the storms of life come rolling in. And so do you catch that heart? God doesn't want you to be wiped out. He doesn't want you to be destroyed. He doesn't want your life to go into chaos and ruin. He wants you to have a foundation and weather those storms. He hasn't just left us here to just figure it out yourself. He said, here, here's my words. Follow them. Obey them and you'll be wise. So why did Jesus give us his words? Well, we could think of it this way. He gave us his words so that we'll be wise. How about you? I want to be wise. So many times I go, man, I don't understand. God, help me be wise. He wants us to thrive. He wants us to survive these storms of life. And so if we follow his words, we'll avoid foolishness and we'll avoid spiritual failure. That's his heart for us. That's God's heart is that we would thrive in this life. So how do I catch that? How do I thrive? Well, I think the answer is right here in the sermon too. Part of thriving is understanding where to aim. Go, yeah, I want to thrive. I think most of us say, yeah, I really want to have a good life. Where do we aim? Well, Jesus says this. And so we're kind of actually working our way backwards through today's passage, right? Jesus said, beware of, beware of false prophets. Verse 15. So what are we supposed to avoid? False prophets. Our human nature is to follow others. It really is. As much as we like to think about, oh, I'm independent and we're independent and I just don't want to, we follow others. We're going to have a tendency to follow others. And Jesus is saying, beware of who you follow. Everyone has a mentor, right? Even those who are mentors would say, my mentor is so-and-so. It seems like this stream, right, of who's at the top. Like somewhere there's a mentor who doesn't have a mentor. But I don't think it's the case. Somehow it all loops back around, right? 
So Jesus is warning us, we won't thrive if we choose the wrong leaders, if we choose the wrong mentors, if we choose the wrong people. So beware of following the wrong people. So who should we avoid following? Well, obvious case here, he says what? People who are in sheep's clothing, but inward are ravenous wolves. So people who maybe appear to be good, but are actually bad. Right? It'd be pretty easy if we walked out and said, man, that guy is a total liar and a scumbag. <laughs> We're obviously not going to follow him, right? But we've got to beware of the people who are not, who look like they're really good. Wow, that guy looks like he's really good. He's, I'm really sort of drawn to that guy. Well, man, we've got to beware. What if he's a wolf in sheep's clothing? We've got to beware of that. So what does it mean? I think this points to a few things. So a wrong leader, we've got to be to watch out for these wolves. We've got to look for people who are in positions of self-made authority. See, if you had that wolf, you had sort of that guy, that, that sort of scummy guy, no one would like, hey, let's elevate that guy into leadership. Right? You hang around with people long enough, you understand if they're, oh, man, you're actually a wolf trying to be in sheep's clothing here. And you would never put that person up into leadership. But when you find somebody who's elevated themselves into leadership, they've developed their own thing or named it after themselves. Not that that's necessarily always bad, but, hey, I'm in the self-made authority. Who gave you that authority? Well, I sort of did. Hmm. We've got to watch out for those kind of guys. That may not be a good place to be. Second thing would be those who are malicious deceivers. What do I mean by malicious deceivers? I think you could have unknowing deceivers, people who are just wrong and they don't really understand that they're wrong. We're looking for people who are like, I'm going to deceive people because there's something I can get out of it. We've got to beware of that, Jesus says. They're, they're deceiving. They're not just, oh, I'm a wolf and I woke up in sheep's clothing. They're a wolf and they put on that clothing. And they did that for the purpose of trying to deceive. Third kind of thing is those who manipulate scriptures in order to manipulate others. Obviously, we think of cult leaders, right? Cult leaders would sort of fit into all of these things. They're sort of self-made authority, right? No one has sort of elevated them to that. They've sort of made that power on their own. And they're malicious deceivers because they're trying to get things they want. And they manipulate the scripture. They take the scripture and they use it in an incorrect way so that they can get other people to do things for them. So that would be kind of a classic example of this. There's others who will use church, use Christianity as a way to do things like get wealthy or get power or have television shows and yeah it's it, you got to watch out for those people i'm not saying that oh being wealthy is a problem at all or that that's ungodly absolutely not but if you're going to say i'm going to use this so that i can get to that place and i'm going to walk over people and i'm going to bring myself into authority i'm going to deceive people so i can get there that's a problem that's a problem can always ask that question. Is this person who's a leader, are they in this for the money? Are they in this for the money? And you should ask these questions about me. You should ask these questions about me. Now, speaking of myself, all of us will read this, right? We all say, man, Jesus says, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We all read that and we go, oh, that's not me. That's somebody else, <laughs> right? We all say that's not me. But, wait, how do I know it's not me? 
How do I know it's not us? Hmm. Well, Jesus fortunately tells us, he says, every healthy tree bears good fruit. The diseased tree bears bad fruit. So how do we know? Well, are we bearing good fruit or are we bearing bad fruit? Well, we also have to understand what good fruit is. We have to understand what good fruit is. So I'm going to explain this here. See, in the human economy, and maybe it's an American thing or just our cultural thing, I don't know, but we look at fruit and we think of big stuff. Think of churches, for example. We think of good fruit and people will ask that. How many people are in your church on a Sunday? 500, 1,000? Wow, there's some good fruit there. Or, how many people have you baptized this year? 150? How many? Oh, there's good fruit there. I also think of other crazy things. Hey, are you a spiritual warrior? Are you waging battle in the spiritual realms? Did you, did you say some stuff? Did you make some predictions? Did you speak sort of prophetically and maybe some things came to pass? Did you just, man, maybe you're just a grand spiritual influencer and you said spiritual things and it influenced people. It's really easy for us in this culture, in this economy, or just as humans to go, wow, that's really good fruit. But that's not really what Jesus is saying. It's necessarily good fruit. Right? He says, these people will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? Man, those are all good things, aren't they? None of us would say, that's bad stuff, unless you're on the side of the demons. You go, wow, these are, these are good things. They're good. And so we have to conclude this, that good things are not good fruit, even if they are good. Okay, so what is good fruit? See, Jesus doesn't dispute the goodness of these works, right? They say, Lord, did we not prophesy and cast out demons and do mighty works? He doesn't say, well, those are bad things. He doesn't dispute that. His answer is, I never knew you. Well, the key is there. And so let's look at that word fruit. Let's go to the Greek. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, so I just had to look it up just like any of the rest of us would. What is Greek? It's this, it's this word karpos. It means fruit. Now, if you go to the Vines Dictionary of New Testament Terms, which helps us understand these things a little bit better, its definition is this. You see it on the screen. Fruit in this karpos being the visible expression of power working inwardly and invisibly. And then I love this part. The character of the fruit being evidence of the character of the power producing it. Say that again. The character of the fruit being evidence of the character of the power producing it. So the fruit Jesus is talking about is character qualities in our lives that reflect the character of God. He's not talking about good deeds or good things. He's talking about good character qualities. So, when I say fruit, right? Oh, we're talking about fruit and talking about spiritual fruit. What other passage comes to mind? Anyone? The fruit of the Spirit. Yes. I was hoping someone would say that. And I have it right here. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Paul says this. The fruit, the karpos of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
Do you notice something about this passage? Paul doesn't say, and the fruit of the Spirit is prophecy, spiritual warfare, and miraculous signs. He says it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are character qualities, not deeds. What else do we see in the New Testament about fruit? Colossians 1.10 says this, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice he doesn't say bearing good fruit by every good work. And I went to a bunch of different translations of this and they all say essentially the same thing. Bearing fruit in every good work. The good work is not the good fruit. The character quality is the good fruit. The good works stem from the character qualities. Therefore, good fruit is not what you do. It's what the Spirit accomplishes in your life. So back to the Lord, Lord statement. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? There's a couple things we can see about this. The first one is this. People can do good stuff apart from the power of God. People can even apparently do good spiritual stuff apart from the power of God. Apart from the fruit of the Spirit. That's a heart check for us. The second thing Jesus seems to be saying, he seems to be referring to those who want to circumvent the process of discipleship. Instead of wanting to walk through the process of, man, I've got to go through this process and let the Spirit work on me and develop love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and then get to whatever good works he has before me. Instead of wanting to go through that process, I want to get around it and just get to the cool stuff that everybody looks at and says, hey, that's really neat. We have to be aware of this. And we see this maybe more often than not. A story that comes to my mind, experience I had when we just first planted this church 13 years ago. There was a young man who came and started coming to this church and he was a believer and he was really excited. He said, man, I just, I want to be a leader. I want to be a pastor. I want to stand up and teach and do all kinds of stuff. And we said, great. That's great. But you're a new believer and so what you need to do is you've got to plug in and you've got to walk and let the Spirit develop this stuff in your life. And you know what? You come to church and you serve and you give and you pray and you read the Bible and you get connected with other people and eventually maybe by God's grace there'll be an opportunity it'll make sense in all the circumstances of things that you could become a pastor. Right? For those of you who are new, we, we don't go out and hire pastors from somewhere else. That's fine. Some other churches do that. We don't. We look and we see the character qualities that exist. They're outlined for us in 1 Timothy and Titus. And we go, well, when a man has demonstrated those things and he's working in that capacity and there's a need in the church, we recognize him into that role. This young man didn't like that. And I think it's because he didn't really want to walk through the path of discipleship. He just wanted to get to the end and stand on stage and have there be some kind of glory. Being here, I'm not really exactly sure what that glory is, but that's what he wanted to get to. And so he wrote a nasty letter and went off and did something else. And we see this kind of thing of people want to just circumvent the process of discipleship and they, I want to get to something that I think is glorious and maybe brings glory to me and pretend like that's spiritual and I don't want to walk through this process of developing the fruit of the Spirit. 
So we've got to watch out for that even in our own lives. So Jesus is telling us, aim for the good fruit of character. And the Sermon on the Mount gives us our instructions. And the instructions are discipleship. There's just no way around it. So what does this mean? I think if we go elsewhere in the New Testament and elsewhere in the words of Jesus, we can get kind of a clear picture of what this is, some clarity. And that's when we go to the parable of the sower. And it comes from uh, Matthew chapter 13. I'll have it here on the screen for you and read it. Jesus gives this parable. He says, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depths of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Unless we think that uh, God was just giving us a story about agriculture, he goes on a few verses later and gives us an explanation of what he was talking about. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. And so what we need to recognize from this story, there's a few things to recognize, but one of those is that I really think Jesus is talking about ongoing discipleship. Okay, now we can read this story, and I think there's an aspect of it where we say, yeah, this is about people who hear the good news the first time, and there is good soil, and there's bad soil, and and I understand that, but why do I think this is about discipleship? I think it's about discipleship because Jesus says he produces a crop. The seed falls on the good soil, it produces a crop, and so there's this sense of things ongoing in our relationship with God. See, good soil is the absence of the other three conditions, right? So I have this picture, put it on the screen, and you just walk out in the wilderness and find this, don't you? No. You look at this and we know immediately... Especially anyone who grew up in like rural Iowa, or I don't know, some of you did, right? You know, there's a lot of work that went into that. Those straight rows, it probably looked like those hills in the background before it was the straight rows. There's a lot of work that went into it. So we don't walk out in nature and see, oh, just straight rows of lettuce growing out there, delicious. We don't. It takes work to have good soil. You've got to get the rocks out. You've got to get the weeds out. You've got to till it so it's not beaten down. Wow, that sounds a lot like our, our parable, doesn't it? So let's go back to this passage. And that first part, 
What is the path? Jesus says it's those who don't understand it. What are the rocks? He says it's those who have no roots. What are the thorns? It's those who are unfruitful. So he's calling us to achieve good soil in our lives, Christians. There's an effort. We've got to get the rocks out. We've got to get the thorns out. We've got to till the ground. We have to do that. So how do we achieve good soil? To achieve good soil, there's a couple things we've got to do. First, we have to go after understanding. You don't want to be the beaten down path. You've got to get understanding. Proverbs 4.7 says, The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Tells us elsewhere, any of you lack wisdom? Ask God and he'll give it to you. We've got to get wisdom. We want to be good soil. That's what we have to do. We also have to develop roots of faith. You don't want to be choked out by the weeds of life. Roots of faith. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Third thing we can do is make God's concerns ours. Matthew 19, 30 says, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says what? He says, Seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. Seek first his kingdom. So that brings us right back into the Sermon on the Mount. It's our instructions. And what are those instructions? Well, we'll just review them here. You want to be good soil? Do you want to thrive? You want to be a disciple? What does being a disciple look like? Well, here's the things you have to engage with. You have to accept that you're weak. You have to mourn. You've got to be willing to mourn. You've got to be willing to have sorrow. <clears throat> you have to care deeply to have sorrow. You have to be meek. That means being trampled on sometimes. We have to be hungry and thirsty. We have to be unsatisfied. We have to be merciful. And not when it's easy, when we've been wronged unjustly. We have to be pure in heart would be easy, except we live in a polluted world and it's very difficult. We have to make peace with those who don't deserve to have peace made with them. We have to be willing to be persecuted because we're holding to the truth. We have to be a good example to the others and not check out and just be lazy and just do whatever we want. We have to be a good example to others. We shouldn't be angry. We've got to avoid anger. We have to avoid lust. When you marry, stay married. Those of you who are married know that that ain't easy. Keep your promises. That also isn't easy, is it? You have to absorb injustice. You have to love your enemies. Really love your enemies. You have to give and serve without getting a reward for it. You have to surrender your will to God's will. You have to be willing to be poor if that's what God would have of you. You have to stop pursuing and worshiping wealth. You have to stop worrying. You have to surrender your plans and take on God's plans. You don't condemn others for their sins. You trust God to provide for your needs and you treat others the way God treats you. That's my summary of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And so you see those things and you go, man, that's a high bar, but guess what? We don't have to do those things to get into relationship with God. We do those things to till the soil. And as we till the soil, the Spirit works in us. And as the Spirit works in us, what comes out of us? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then there's good fruit. And then there's good fruit. And on Judgment Day, I won't have to stand before God and say, Lord, look, I did some really cool stuff. I can say, Lord, I knew you. Because I engaged with discipleship and I tilled the soil and your spirit produced in me good fruit. And like John said earlier, praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. And is this easy? Is discipleship easy? No. It ain't easy. Jesus addresses this in verses 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Whoop. It's narrow. The gate is wide. The way is easy that leads to destruction. And that's where the world is going. That's where the culture around us is going. Those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. We can thrive in life, guys. We can thrive as individuals and as a church if we're willing to till up that soil, if we're willing to make these difficult choices, and it doesn't mean, man, that's a, that's a big list of like what, 24 different things from the Sermon on the Mount that we've got to aim for. Great. It gives us a lot to work on together. Amen. Let's work on those things together. Let's till up that soil. Let's thrive together. I'll go ahead and pray, and we'll close our time. Yeah, Lord, thank you for leaving us here with instructions of how we should live. Thank you for giving us an aim with a life. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for offering the free gift of salvation. But thank you for not just leaving us here and saying, figure it out. Lord, we thank you for the words of Jesus. Lord, as we think of all of those things, man, that's some really difficult stuff for us to engage with. Lord, I don't want to absorb injustice. I'd rather punch somebody in the nose. But that's not what you'd call me to. Lord, help us to look for true good fruit in our lives. For the fruit of the Spirit, which are character qualities, Lord. And we know, Lord, we know that as we have your Spirit developing those character qualities in us, then good fruit will flow from that. We don't need to, we don't need to try to run to make good things to make it look like we have good fruit going in our lives. We need to focus on these things. Lord, help us in that. Thank you for your word and for the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.